This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society, and we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. Tony Lyons, it is wonderful to have you join us today. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So good to have you on, and I have thoroughly enjoyed the huge number of, let me just show you the the number of Skyhorse publications, which I have enjoyed, and that goes past my Kindle. Um, This one, the 15%, which obviously was Terry Giles that that made Mm. the connection. I've got to know Terry very well over the last five years, Um, stayed with him, and he is a, a great guy. Another person is Joe Allen. Dark Eon, um, and this is a great book on transhumanism. I got to know Joe over the last probably two years. And another person that I know you published in the midst of your over a thousand books a year is Robert Malone. And I got to stay with Robert and Jill. I've stayed with them three or four times. And and all those three individuals, whether it's um, Terry, whether it's Joe, or whether it's Robert, I've got to call them friends over the last uh, three years, four years. And those are a range of the wonderful books I think we'll delve into as we discuss. But skyhorsepublishing.com obviously is the website. Um, And maybe, Tony, we can start on a range of books obviously behind you on many of your publications. But before we get into the Sky Horse story, can I ask you a little bit about your background? Sure. What can I tell you? Uh, you want to just uh, uh, start from uh, what tell town us? Are you to start from whatever you want to tell us, because you obviously are the one that's been behind this. So it's fascinating to catch a glimpse of who you are, and then we'll move on to actually the publishing house itself. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I can tell you that in. Uh, in 2010, I published, uh, or right around then, Bobby Kennedy's book, Thine Marisol, Let the Science Speak. And when I published that, I learned a lot about kind of new trends that were forming in the United States. So what, what happened right around then was uh, that book claimed that mercury in early childhood vaccines uh, could cause you know, all kinds of harm to young children. And so what happened is that when that book came out, we didn't send out any pre-publication copies. But what we found was that um, they were something like a dozen stories that came out simultaneously with publication saying that the book got it all wrong, even though nobody could have read the book yet uh, because the book was not available. And, you know, we didn't do galleys for it. We didn't send any to to the press. So it was kind of a fascinating thing. Then we found that, People wouldn't accept advertisement for it. Um, And, you know, there was this sort of general consensus that this 500 page book that quoted literally hundreds of peer reviewed studies was just wrong because it was dangerous to the profitability of a bunch of big pharmaceutical companies. So, you know, I was kind of shocked by that at the time that, you know, 13 years back. And, uh, you know, what I started to learn was that we don't really have the kind of free speech in this country 
that we thought we had, you know, that and, and that most people still probably think we have. So that sort of began a long journey of publishing lots and lots of controversial books, uh, many of which were censored in all kinds of ways. And, and then I sort of learned ways to, to fight back. Well, Tales You Scarred started Skyhorse back in 2006, which seems a, a world away from where we are at the moment, um, 18 years ago. Why on earth uh, did you decide to start a publishing house? There are much easier ways, I'm sure, of making a living. So tell us why you sat down and decided that was what you wanted to do. Yeah, that's a great question because when I when I went around and I tried to raise money to start the company, there were a whole bunch of people who said, "Hey, Tony, you look like a smart guy. Why would you want to do this?" <laughs> you know, nobody reads now, and and this is you know 18 years ago. People read much more then than they read now. Um, and 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 the point that I had really was that that I had a real passion for publishing books, that I want to be a book publisher, and that I was going to work very hard, and that I had a history of of working very hard in the field of publishing and that I had been successful before that. So, you know, so I started this, this company and I, and I really had to talk people into wanting to get involved in it. And, uh, but was very happy when it, when it actually happened. And, uh, you know, since then we've published, um, you know, something like 10,000 books. So it's kind of a crazy number. We have now 12,000 books in print. Um, having bought up some other imprints from other publishers. Um, so it's been a very long journey. Um, and and it's a journey that I'm hoping to continue for the next 30 years. Well, tell us about, because I think I read that within five years of starting a staff of 40, which is a, a phenomenal growth for a new company, you made a number of acquisitions. Um, I mean, Tell us about that journey because uh, making acquisitions is a is a massive step, I think, for a company. One is that organic growth with bringing on staff, but actually making acquisitions is, a, I guess, a statement of intent, um, and that's not necessarily easy for a new company. Tell us kind of what lay behind that and how that fit into your growth. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I started the company uh, with an intern uh, and just me working out of a Starbucks um, in Midtown Manhattan and uh, signed up a whole bunch of books that that first year, but didn't even have a location. So that was in 2006. And then when 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 we had the contracts for about 100 books and I hired a staff of, of people to you know start to edit them and, uh, you know, rented space. And uh, and then as we had some really strong years, you know, in 2007, eight, nine, uh, then, then we started to look for you know other publishing companies that that weren't doing well, and after 2008 and all of the financial troubles that that came with that period, uh, there were five or six publishing companies that were in bankruptcy or close to bankruptcy, and and it, and it seemed to to me at the time that um, that bringing them all together might make them a viable business. And you know, publishing is such a tough business now, and it's it, it's really hard to run a very small company. So you know, all of those companies. So they were so so there was us, and then there were five or six others. Each of the companies had a publisher, had a CFO, had a you know uh, 
somebody in charge of production, you know, all of the different jobs. So when we merged them all together in those early years, uh, we were able to sort of make a much tighter company that actually could survive, you know, even though the the numbers of people reading books in this in this country and in and in the UK and in this world are, you know, just seem to be plummeting. I guess the margins on books are not crazy when looking at the business side of it. You know, the margins aren't so bad if if you actually sold all the books that you printed. But the problem is that um, all around the world still, books are sold returnable. So you sell books to Barnes & Noble, for example. They can take as many as they want. And then if they don't sell, they can ship them back. So, so you get into real trouble when, when Barnes & Noble loves a book or Amazon loves a book and they say, you know, send me 20,000 copies. So we print 20,000 copies. And then if they don't sell, they can all come back. And, you know, then, then potentially you, you just get stuck with all of them. Tony, I read somewhere that you publish a thousand books a year. Um, you talked about your, your back catalog. This means you're no niche publisher. Um, and yeah, I think you talk about yourself as a kind of a, a small scale or alternative. Um, tell us how that works, because most of the public have no idea of the kind of scale of the book industry or the major companies involved. How do you kind of Skyhorse fit into that array? Yeah. So right now in the US, you know, there are five big companies that are all more than a billion dollars. And they're mostly owned by, you know, well-known um, worldwide conglomerates. So, you know, in New York, there used to be hundreds and hundreds of small publishers. And all of those got eaten up by the big, big five publishers. So, you know, Skyhorse fits in because there really aren't any other publishers left that that are able to kind of uh, move quickly, make decisions independently, uh, and sort of have somebody who can just choose. So I, as the publisher, can publish anything that I that I want. There's no way to kind of censor me. Um, so it's it's some, sometimes hard to get books into stores, and you know things can be taken down, and interviews can be taken down from big tech platforms, and that happens to us all the time. But the beauty of the printed book is that it it just can't be taken off anything. You know, it's out there. It's there forever. It can be, you know, some of the time libraries don't don't carry it. So it's a it's a constant struggle to actually get the books into the right places. But, you know, there is something really permanent with it. And uh, we're one of very few now really independent publishing companies where nobody tells us what to do. Nobody tells us, you know, uh, how to publish. Uh, nobody looks at our authors and says, hey, this person, you know, Robert Malone is a dangerous guy because he disagrees with Dr. Fauci, you know. Um, so so that, I think, makes us a, a unique company in a world just filled with censorship and propaganda. And how do the other forms, like you look at ebooks, you look at audiobooks, um, kind of how does that fit into what you do? Yeah, those are even better now because, you know, if you put an ebook up, 
and then that can be downloaded anywhere on the planet. It's, you know, it's even harder to censor that. And same with audiobooks, you know, that people anywhere on the planet can find a way to download that. So that's a really nice development in the history of of publishing and the history of censorship that um that it that it's harder and harder. But what's happened in the US in the last couple of years is is that the censorship sort of hit a wall and now there are all these new platforms springing up so that it's it's actually getting harder to to censor now even though it's clear from some of the current cases that the government you know that the Biden administration for example really worked hard to censor things that they disagreed with so they put out statements saying that they're trying to protect the public from misinformation or disinformation um but what they're really trying to do is silence anybody who they disagree with and so it is sort of shocking that 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 can happen from the executive branch of the government in a in a country where we kind of pride ourselves on on being free and so to a to a great extent for all kinds of reasons we see more and more that that we're not really free and that there's a lot of fighting to be done to get some of that freedom back I always love, I guess, ebook is is a fairly simple process from having the printed copy. Audiobooks is something a little bit different. And I talk to people and they prefer an audiobook because they can listen on the go. Some mm. authors do their own voiceovers and sit in a booth, I guess. Others actually bring in someone else. I mean, do you have conversations? Because it is it's always intriguing, I find, as a consumer, whenever an author does their own audiobook, but that probably takes a lot of time and effort. Yeah, there are some people who still do that, and you know, but it takes a lot of dedication. So, you know, probably 95% of our books are just done by professionals. Yep. So okay, so um so Kyron there, 95% are done by professionals. T- tell us about that process. Yeah, so that that process is that we work with an outside company and they um, hire somebody or, or, or they sort of look at, at three or four possibilities. And in, and in many cases, they would send us short samples from each of those people. And then some of the time we would run it by the author if we feel that they're going to have a strong point of view or I would just make the decision. Or in, or in some cases, if it feels like it doesn't really matter too much, then, then we might just go with, with what the uh, outside consultant recommends. And of course, it's a wide range of books because kind of people may come to Skyhorse in different ways. I mean, when Terry Giles said, oh, my book is about Skyhorse, I seriously, I, I hadn't actually looked at that. Oh, it's down there. And you look at the um, Robert Kenny Jr. You see behind you, look at the Robert Malone's. Uh, those are books on kind of one end of the spectrum. The media like to tell us are controversial. But you obviously do a, a wide range of other books, which are um, probably fit more to lifestyle publications. H- how do you kind of balance that massive range of subjects? Well, some of them we've brought imprints from from other publishers. So we publish, you know, we have 20 different Im- imprints now. and Each has different subject matter. Um, so some of them I don't really get that involved with. So we have a lot of 
gardening books and craft books and I don't garden. I don't do crafts. Um, you know, we have books about a lot of outdoor sports. Some of those sports I play, but I'm, I'm not really an, an expert in, in any of those areas. So we have somebody in, in each area who kind of knows it much better than I do. Um, obviously you, you come from, you've got a, a, a passion for issues for the, the political realm. Um, but as a publisher, I guess you're looking at this as a, a commercial activity. I mean, tell me you personally, how does that balance come in between a concern for the issues, but also a business that generates income? Yeah, I mean, when it when it comes to politics, for example, you know, my my position is that that the truth is sort of the product of a free and open debate. So I feel that my my role isn't to choose books. You know, I don't I don't want to be involved in in the in the propaganda that I'm actually trying to fight. So I would very much like to present books on both sides of most issues so that those are available to the public and then I'd like to encourage the writers of those books to debate. And I have some sense in my own mind of how things would come out if there was a free, open, and fair debate. Um, but you know, I'm I'm willing to change my mind if somebody makes a better argument. So you know, that that's a lot of what I do. And I've I've had days here where I have, you know, some a, a very left wing person in one one room meeting with a couple of people, and then a very right wing person in a in a in a different room. And I'm kind of hoping they don't you know meet and yell at each other in the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that, uh, but uh, for I, I guess you've been pitched books that you think actually you like that book, but you're not sure of the the commercial value. How do you balance that up? Yeah, I mean, you know, we 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 publish lots of books, and I and I, you know, sometimes will will publish books because I just think they're important. Most publishers only make a profit on a very small percentage of the books that they do. Um, Generally, I think we we do much better than that. Um, but but we don't, you know, always have to make a profit on a on a on a book. And and then it's it's of course always very hard to tell beforehand what's going to happen. So there there've been books that I published because I really liked them, thinking that we're probably going to lose some money, but not too much money. And then I'm just shocked, and they and they sell really well. And then it goes the other way too, where there are books where I'm convinced they're going to sell like crazy, and they don't sell at all. And of course, there's one side, you're the publisher, but I guess, as you've touched on, there's the other side of the distribution of the, the bookshops and, and that network. How does that, um, just look at the US side and then you take internationally, uh, and of course, Amazon being the, 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 the big book company that has, has changed how things are done. So how do you fit in as a, as a publisher, but then on top of that, it's about distribution? Yeah, so the distribution gets gets tough when uh, when you publish certain kinds of books. So, for example, when we published the real Anthony Fauci by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., um, it was kind of shocking how much censorship there was. So, if you look back, some of the claims in that book are really kind of shocking, and the general public would have liked to know what those claims were. I mean, there are some some things like, for example, there's a 
there's an old generic drug called hydroxychloroquine. There's a whole chapter on it in the book. So, um, you know, this is a this is a drug that was used for all kinds of things, um, and it had been used for 75 years, and there had never been any data saying that it was dangerous. So, what this book shows is that there was this concerted effort by the U.S. government under Dr. Fauci to discredit this old drug so that vaccines could get approved, even though the drug worked really well. And looking back on it, it probably worked in conjunction with some other generic drugs better than vaccination did. So it's kind of a shocking thing. So they they came at it so strongly. I mean, this is just a fascinating chapter that you would think that every investigative journalist in America would have wanted to cover the story either then or at any time in between, or even right now, because it's just a fascinating story. So the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet, two of the top, you know, scientific journals in the world, um, you know, came out with stories that were just made up stories. So they were peer reviewed studies that basically showed that suddenly hydroxychloroquine became dangerous because it was a threat to the vaccine program. So it's a com complicated backstory. But but the amazing thing is that you can publish a book that's real news, that's kind of just telling the world, telling the general public what's going on, what the government is actually doing to lie to you. And then that can be so incredibly censored so that it was not, I mean, the book just caught fire. And part of the reason was that we had a whole team of people going on small radio shows that didn't censor and podcasts. So so the world kind of changed from getting their news from television to getting it from 200 different podcasts, some of which were very powerful, and, and lots of local radio, which is very hard to uh, censor. So, so for its first week, it was the best-selling book in the world. It sold 92,000 copies, and the number two book sold 82,000 copies. And the New York Times took the real Anthony Fauci and felt that it was it was too big a phenomenon for them to just ignore it. So they made it number seven on their bestseller list. Um, and, and the number one was a book written by uh, somebody who was connected to the New York Times. So then then it then they didn't review it. They refused to let us run ads for it. Um, the interviews that Bobby Kennedy did or that I did or that other people did were all taken off big tech platforms. So they were just scrubbed. Um, libraries all around the country would not carry it. Small bookstores wouldn't, wouldn't carry it. Uh, we had teams of people calling up bookstores just to verify that they wouldn't carry it. Uh, then then I, I went on some, some TV shows that were willing to have me on uh, just to talk about the censorship, not about the content, because they weren't willing to have have me or anybody else talk about the actual content. Um, but it was just a fascinating moment where the distribution and the sale of, of books kind of shifted and, and there became this really large market for books that it was clear that the government didn't want you to read. And it was clear that the mainstream media didn't want you to read and that you know, all of these big companies that might be hurt by the content of of, of a wide range of books um, really uh, use their strength to make sure or to try to ensure that books didn't get any distribution.
And so it was really a commentary on democracy in America, um, you know, for this whole sort of time period that you, you just can't believe anything because you see that that the news stations, that the newspapers uh, are, are all controlled by groups that have some kind of political perspective. And I guess the 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 Bobby Kennedy, how he fits in, uh, not even looking at the, the the presidential run side, but simply looking at an individual from the left with that name as a dynasty, mm. actually stirring things up. Um, I've in just in the UK, I've loved watching that, uh, and the left contort themselves trying to understand what this means because this is someone who they should like, and yet they don't like the message. Um, and it's a uh, it's fascinating, I guess, to look at that agenda, that issue being discussed, and I guess the media not understanding how they should approach it. Yeah, it's been a been kind of a fascinating ride. So you had the the uh, DNC and you know Biden's whole team deciding at first to try to ignore Bobby Kennedy. So they never said a said a word, and his polling kept going up. So while they weren't saying anything, you, you had all the major newspapers writing hit pieces on him just periodically. And even when good reporters tried to tried to cover him, um, you would see that the reporter's name would 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 be there. And then it would say that they got help from two or three other people. And so so the way that that works in this country at The New York Times, The Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, almost almost anywhere, probably less with the Wall Street Journal, but um, but in 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 so many newspapers, you know the 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 L.A. Times. Um, so what happens is somebody writes the story, and then somebody else comes along and they add in all the boilerplate. So if if somebody says something like, um, uh, "Doctor Joe Latipo from California has has claimed." That uh, that vaccine that that the COVID vaccine is dangerous for healthy uh, athletic men who are at no risk of dying of COVID, but then in fairly large numbers died of uh, uh, heart attacks caused by the back vaccine. So he then presented um, studies showing that. So when when his book. Um, was reviewed, everybody who wrote about it added in uh, that he was totally dis discredited and that there was no truth to any of the claims he was he was making, even though they didn't really sort of counter any of the actual science. So it so it sort of showed you that um, that to some extent it's kind of the death of real science. So science is is sort of weaponized there where where they can take, do fake studies, take real studies down, and then point to those fake studies. Um, and so it's just a very complicated thing. And the general public doesn't know that all these games are going on. And the same thing is true with our po political books in, in the sense that, you know, um, Bobby Kennedy uh, decides to run for president. The DNC then makes it impossible for him to run as a Democrat. Then as soon as he drops out, they say that he's abandoned all of his principles. 
um, that he is a traitor to the Democratic Party. Um, and that's national news. So, of course, that's not the way it really happened. And, you know, then then they're trying to do everything they can to disenfranchise the 30 or 40 million voters who want to vote for him. Uh, we have multiple books that are that are on this kind of thing. Um, and they and, and they basically uh, can use all of their power, both the power of the presidency to censor him. Uh, the power of, of the DNC working closely with three PACs that between them have something like $400 million now uh, to just come out with all kinds of stories trying to discredit Bobby Kennedy. Uh, they file a, um, a complaint with the FEC uh, uh, trying to make it harder for him to get ballot access. Um, and then for the first time in 60 years, they um, decide not to give Secret Service protection to a presidential candidate. Um, and then they give it to Nikki Haley, who's polling way behind Bobby Kennedy. So Bobby Kennedy turns in these reports that are really comprehensive, telling about the threats to his life, that somebody showed up at a party with two guns, you know, all of these kinds of things. And the law itself was created for the Kennedy family after his father and his uncle were assassinated. Um, but they deny him now three times with the sole purpose of draining his campaign funds and kind of dis discrediting him, trying to make him look like he's not a serious candidate. But they give it to Nikki Haley as a political move uh, really, really quickly because they think Nikki Haley probably has this dual purpose that she hurts Trump but she also makes Bobby Kennedy look bad because they sort of say, well, she must be a more serious candidate, even though she's polling at much, much lower numbers. So all of these kinds of political games just show you that we don't have a real democracy. We have incredible censorship. We have incredible propaganda on, on all sorts of things from foreign policy to book publishing you know, and, and all the things, uh, you know, ancillary to those. Um, and, and so many of the things that Americans are so proud of, and they point to sort of Russia as being this, you know, dangerous country that censors its own people where you can't trust the media. Um, but you look at the United States and we have a media. I mean, there was a, the uh, DNC came after one of our donors for our super PAC um, last week. And on the same day, I got calls from at least 10 American newspapers, all wanting to write a story on that same person. So this is a super PAC that has, you know, funding that's something like one thirtieth, you know, something like 3% of the three DNC super PACs that are getting money from big pharmaceutical companies, big oil companies, billionaires, you know, all of these people who the American public ought to really know about. And they're investigating every newspaper is in is investigating this donor who just happens to like Bobby Kennedy. He's not in business. He's not in politics. He has no agenda. He just likes Bobby Kennedy. So, you know, whereas all of these other donors to the to the DNC PACs are clearly trying to curry favor, trying to change policy. It's just a form of of lobbying. 
So sorry to go on for for so long, but you know it's your fault for getting me started. <laughs> no, I, look, I can see that in London from thousands of miles away. So uh, I can't imagine what it's like to be there. Though I'm just back from the states. You told me the DNC and the restrictions on certain publishing. Obviously, the other side is uh, the actual. Um, I guess you see the Times bestseller list. You see different bestseller lists, and you, you touched on that. Um, I mean, how transparent is that? Because people look at it and they make a decision of what they buy by what they see as the most popular. Everyone kind of wants to buy into what's popular. Um, others actually just want a book and it's irrelevant how popular. But I mean, how transparent are those bestseller lists? Yeah, generally the you know the big bestseller lists now are are kind of fake bestseller lists. They're like recommended reading list, but they're recommended from the top titles. So so let's say that they're 50 best selling titles. You know, what 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 the New York Times does is it says that it has a special algorithm. And that algorithm, uh, whether it was started like that or not, clearly steers people to the kinds of books that they like. And and that's that's very clear because what happens is you know they're they're basing their list on uh, they're they're giving special weight to the small privately owned bookstores. So the problem is that the small privately owned bookstores don't buy books like the real Anthony Fauci. They they don't buy conservative titles. They don't buy controversial titles. Um, you know they don't buy titles right now that question our government. Um, so the, the idea now, which is really kind of a scary thing, and it, it, it makes you think of books like 1984, uh, where the definition of misinformation is anything that contradicts a government official. So how could that be a democracy then if you're not allowed to publish books that contradict what the government says? I mean, isn't that one of the roles? of publishing and the media is to sort of keep the government honest. But what happens now is that most media is just in, in lockstep with government officials. And then, then, you know, when it comes to something like public health, many of the big tech platforms, you know, we know from, from some of the cases that are, that are coming up now that they were getting emails from the president or, I mean, not directly from the president, but from the executive branch uh, asking them to take down books, to de-amplify books, to put special notes that made it harder for people to find books, you know, all of those kinds of things. And uh, so it, it, it really is a scary time in this country where it's really difficult to know what's true. And, uh, you know, there's a Democratic politician who sent out this big email uh, saying that, you um, that the reason that you should vote for her is that she's going to make sure that there's no misinformation, you know, coming out in all of these key areas. And, and I was reading, you know, you know, uh, two or th two or three people sent me the letter that she had sent out and it was just fascinating how much pride she, she took in that. So, so she said, you know, there are a lot of people out there like Robert Malone, like Bobby Kennedy, like thousands of doctors, thousands of lawyers, 
uh, thousands of people doing real research who she would categorize as dangerous people. And so they're dangerous to a really specific narrative that is constructed to prop up and help the profits of a very small number of corporations. So when you think about that, that's an oligarchy. You know, that that's not a democracy. And, you know, so here is a candidate for Senate who is proud of that, who's telling the American people how important it is to have somebody like her in the Senate who's going to fight to make sure that everybody agrees with everything that the government says going forward. Well, I cannot sleep more safely at night, Tony. Uh, knowing you've told me there's a Democrat in the Senate who wants to protect me from misinformation. Um, there have been a number of headlines I've seen um, here in the UK press and the US press. Uh, there's one from The Guardian uh, 2022, a newspaper here certainly leaning far to the left. I said, Tony Lyons, the US publisher who picks up books cancelled by other presses. They obviously meant that as a, a negative headline. Hmm. I saw that I mean as as fairly positive. If, if someone wants to publish a book, actually, it's good that there is a publisher that is there to put that out, and the public can make their viewpoint by actually reading it. Um, I guess you feel the same that you're there in a position to actually put books out that maybe others would not, and therefore it is in the public interest. Yeah. So I mean, books are cancelled for a you know wide range of of reasons so some of the time like i said books can can be canceled at at bigger presses just because the staff doesn't like the book you know it doesn't like what it what it what it stands for um feels that it's that it's dangerous to an outcome that they want um feels that it's sort of uh benefits donald trump so they feel like the publishing company is sort of a political organization and ought to take a stand for what's right. And they believe that, that that's right. Um, I have a very different view about the role of a, of a publishing company. So, you know, I would go really far and I would say, even if the person has done something wrong, you know, even if the person's going to, going to go to jail uh, or, or has gone to jail or is currently in, in jail, that the, that the writing kind of stands by itself. You know that 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 you don't take a famous artist like Caravaggio, who you know may or may not have killed somebody, and destroy all of his artwork. You know his artwork can stand separately from his personal life, and I and I and I tend to sort of um, not feel that that it's the role of a publisher to police what people do in their per, you know personal life, even. You know, e even if it's public, in the sense that they've committed a crime, or um, you know that that any of those things are beyond the scope of what a publisher does. So we we just put out art that we think is really good, or ideas that we think are provocative. That you know, and and books ought to be dangerous. Books ought to be pr provocative. They should make you think more. So the idea now that people buy a book because they know that they agree with it beforehand, you know, that's sort of like, it kind of go, goes along with some of the stats that have come out, which is that 70% of the books that are bought in the United States never get read. So, 
So what happens is people will buy a book almost as a souvenir of something that they care about or something that they believe in because they know exactly what's in that book and they and they know the person writing it and they don't feel that they have to read it. Whereas it really should be the other way around, that, that people should be buying books that they think that they disagree with so that they might learn something. And and if their, their beliefs, uh, if their arguments are strong enough, then they shouldn't be afraid to hear somebody who they assume they disagree with, because that person might be able to convince them that they're wrong, you know, that the way that they've seen things isn't clear. And, um, you know, that's really being lost in the in the current kind of uh, climate. Um, I'll just pick one other headline uh, from Wall Street Journal, June 2023. So um, nine months ago, Skyhorse Publishing, the house of the cancelled, an old fashioned liberal. Tony Lyons welcomes authors from Woody Allen to Alex Jones on topics from 2020 election fraud to defense of Venezuela. Um, uh, well, there are two. One, I don't know if you call yourself an old-fashioned liberal, but also I don't know if other publication houses get critiqued for what they publish. They're just seen as a publisher, um, and I can't imagine newspaper articles written about them, but maybe they are. I don't know. Yeah, as far as I know, there aren't any publishers who who get those kinds of stories. Mainly, I mean, possibly as a po- political statement that there are a lot of people who just don't like some of the books that I publish and and that's for political reasons, you know. So so they they think that uh that by by publishing a book that questions whether the covid vaccine actually helped anybody or whether it um, hurt certain demographics more than it could possibly have ever helped them. Um, or, or that make a claim, for example, that uh, no healthy young people died of COVID. Um, so while those things seem to be true, may really be true, that's that's not the point. It's It's that there's a war going on for the hearts and minds of people all around the world. And so some of the books that we publish are problematic in that war because they're written by really smart people. They make arguments that will actually convince people if they'll listen to it. Um, So what they would prefer is just to be able to sort of control the media um, on all sides, control their politicians, and then just make as much money as they can make uh, and sort of control all the narratives having to do with war, having to do with business, having to do with science. Um, so, you know, that that's what I think my role is. So I don't I don't mind, you know, stories like that coming out. I feel like um, like it is truthful in in some way, you know, that I that I am creating this house of the canceled. Um, but that's an important role. And, and the question is, why are those people canceled? And many of them are canceled because they're incredibly brave and because they're willing to go up against some of the most powerful forces in world history. You know, that the, that the power, and you're seeing it more now with AI, uh, that the power that you're going up against is just the kind of power that would have been the envy of any dictator in history. You know, the idea that 
you can get a bot to search out kind of an idea and just scrub it from the internet. You know, that should really scare people. So they should like a publisher like me who, even if I'm wrong, at least they then know that they've heard both sides of the argument. You know what I mean? Oh, 100%. Um, I just have a final thought. You're you're not slowing down. Uh, you're not sitting back on your laurels. I think uh, at the end of last year in December, you'd bought, um, I never know how to call it, Regnery. I just see the R and I kind of connect that to conservative Christian books. And I, I bought a number of them, but you bought that in December. So that, I mean, that's a, a statement of intent that you're continuing to grow. You're not sitting back on your laurels, but actually, uh, yeah, you want to make step forward. Yeah, what I what I found was that um, Regnery hadn't been doing too well, and I and I thought that a big part of the reason was censorship. And you know, so you take some of the books that they published in the last few months. They published Rand Paul's just terrific book uh, called Deception, um, and it's and it's all about co- you know the uh, COVID years. Um, and I was thinking that by making a more powerful company, we can do a better job than they were able to do by themselves with the same books that they were publishing some really great books. They were publishing them well, but, uh, you know, like I said, they were up against very powerful forces. And so I think we, we can do a better job. We can add value so that that's why I think it kind of made sense. 100%. Well, Tony, I, as a consumer, I really appreciate your books. And um, I know we've had Ed Dowdall, who's written another uh, one of your authors, many authors. So as a consumer, I fantastically appreciate what you are willing to to put out. And I've certainly benefited massively um, from reading it. So thank you so much for coming along and sharing a little bit of the story for Skyhorse Publishing. If you like what we do, Sign up to our mailing list, donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofvoke.org. Thank you for listening.